Hey, hello, PhD listeners. It's been a year and a half since we started the show, and we want your feedback. Take a moment and let us know what you like about the show and give us suggestions for how we could improve. It should take you less than two minutes, and we'll be extremely grateful. Just visit hellophd.com and click on the survey link at the top of the page. Thanks. And now, on to the show. I'm not exactly sure how soy protein is isolated and manufactured. In Spanish, Dan, that means I am protein. That's <laughs> true. It sure does. Thank you. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we share some expert advice for meeting your financial goals on a grad student stipend. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 68. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey, Dan. Josh, running late this week. Good to see you. <laughs> I tell you, we're doing the best we can. I've been traveling to a conference. I haven't, but if you're not here, there's no recording equipment, so. <laughs> That's true. I talked into a tin can for a while. It just didn't go anywhere. That sounded cool, though. Yeah, it did. Uh, speaking of tin cans, we have a couple sitting right here. Excellent. That's what I like to see. And this is actually really cool because what's one of the things I love the most since we started this podcast? People sending us beer. People sending us beer. And this week, Dan, we've got some listener beer. Awesome. Where does this come from? This beer came from Jada, a postdoc at UMass Medical School. Excellent. Thank you, Jada. Yeah. And you may remember Jada back from our postdoc straight talk episodes just keeps on giving, really. I'll tell you what. Well, uh, let me let me read you what, what Jada sent. She reached out. Um, actually, she was really efficient. She reached out at the end of last week, and now this beer is sitting here. So It's amazing. Uh, so this is what she it's wrote. fresh. Hey, guys. Have you ever heard of Treehouse Brewing Company? They're mostly known for their IPAs, and they only can a certain amount each day. If you want it, you pretty much have to go out to their brewery in the middle of nowhere, stand in line, and hope you get some before they run out. The line's long, and the beer pretty much always runs out before the end of it. Every time I hear you guys talk about your love of IPAs, I always think that I should send you some to see what you think of Treehouse. I picked you guys up a can of Julius and a can of Haze. I don't even like IPAs that much, and I've stood in line twice at this place, so you know these are good. Wow, that is impressive. Uh, to It's one amazing thing to mail us beer, right? It's another thing entirely to go stand at a brewery in the middle of nowhere to buy that for us. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, I would say Jada's rocketing to the top of our favorite listeners. This is going to taste terrible. Just know that in <laughs> advance, right? <laughs> All that work. Uh, I have to say, Dan, this is funny because before Jada reached out, because again, this email came through between our last episode and now. And and as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're in the middle of doing this survey to get listener feedback. <laughs> and I have to say, Dan, I was glancing at some of the responses we got so far. Uh, and they've all been great, but one of them was drink more darker beers, porter stouts, ambers, way too many IPAs. <laughs> so I totally had these plans for not drinking IPAs for a while, and then Jada sent us two IPAs, but I just had to drink. I'm going to get now. into your survey results and delete that. <laughs> uh, actually, this is a true story for our listeners, just to see how seriously I take this feedback. Uh, so I mentioned I was in Texas. I was in San Antonio for a conference this weekend, and I went to a couple breweries, as I like to do when I visit a new town. 
And when I go to a new brewery, I always like to get a flight to sample out some of the different brews. And I purposefully did not allow myself to have more than one IPA per flight because I'm trying to train my palate to appreciate other beers more. You're growing as a human. And honestly, Dan, that was just for our listeners. I'm trying to bring in some new tastes. But anyway, this week... You give and you give and you give, Josh. It's just amazing. (laughs) So I apologize this week, listener, who said you wish there were fewer IPAs. We're drinking not one, next week. two IPAs <laughs> yeah. this week. We're getting it out of our system. I thumb my nose at you, sir. Okay, bring bring it on. What are we trying first? All right, so this is the Julius. Dan, I have to say the color on these. It's almost, orange Julius, basically. Yeah, that's, that's what it looks like to me. This Julius supposedly has 1.6 ounces per gallon of American hops. So It is pretty fantastic. This is really good. I, I think it's just because I said the word orange Julius. It, it has an orangey flavor. Would you say there's almost like a creaminess to it or something? Yeah, and, and it's cloudy, so this must not be a filtered beer. I guess so. So The creaminess good. is the live yeast you're tasting, I assume. Well, now, Dan, we're going to do a head-to-head experiment because we're going to try this other one that that Jada sent called the haze. I'm not putting this one down. <laughs> this is really good. It is really good. Um, so let's try let's try this haze. So this actually Dan before you try it also very hazy. This is a double IPA. So a little higher ABV. This is a 8.2 percenter. Twice as delicious as the first. So let's, let's see what you think. The first thing I thought was this is a little earthier. It does have some of that dank flavor. But but these are fascinating because I am accustomed to I drink an IPA and I usually will I'll drink it by itself. I don't want it with food, I don't want it with anything else because the intensity of the bitterness is so strong that if you start to mix other flavors, it's gross. But this is is clean and fresh enough to me that I think you could probably serve it with a meal. Yeah, and I really get the first why. one more than the second one. The second one is is a much stronger definitely. Flavor. But but this Julius, I can definitely see why Jada might appreciate this beer, even if she's not typically an IPA fan. Well, which one do you like more? What's your I winner? think the Julius is my winner. I think the Julius too. Both solid. Don't get me wrong. Both really really amazing. Thank you, Jada. Thank you, Jada, so much. Uh, much appreciated. One more thing, Dan, that I've got to mention is last week we brought up our Patreon campaign that we just started. Yes, excellent. And we've had a couple people donate. Thank you. Yep. So I wanted to give a shout out, Dan, to our first patrons. Shout out to Lynn and Benjamin. Thank you so much. Much appreciated. And um, your support helps us uh, do what we do. And actually, Dan, I wanted to, to make a couple notes about the Patreon campaign. So for those of you who aren't familiar with Patreon, what it is, is it's a way for you to support content creators, people who are creating and making things um, and you want to support their work. And so the way Patreon works is it's a, a monthly donation. And so what we've done is we've established a couple levels that you might want to support the show as low as $1. So for a dollar, you can support the show. Or Dan, I thought this would be pretty cool as an incentive for anyone who supports us um, at $3 a month. We're actually going to host every three months, so quarterly, Uh, a chat. So basically we'll hang out, get a chat room going and talk about really whatever you want to talk about. But my thoughts would be talk about science training in general, get your feedback, give you really um, a venue to give us some suggestions or feedback on the show and just a chance we can get to know our listeners better. And so our plans are to to start doing that every three months. So if you want to do that, go on over to patreon.com slash hello PhD. All right, Dan, are you ready for some science in the news? I am more than ready because I'm going to bring it. All right, Dan, this is a really great one because we actually independently came up with the same topic for science in the news this week. 
Yeah, I was reading my uh, 500 news sites that I read now uh, to keep up with things. And this article popped up that said somebody had done some testing of fast food and they were looking at what percentage of actual chicken was in fast food chicken products. And tastes like chicken. It tastes like chicken. And, you know, I, th- I think we all have a, a cautious optimism that the food we're eating is what it says on the box. But we also know that there's a manufacturing process and it's uh, got some other things in it. But the thing that caught my attention here was Subway was called out specifically for having chicken that was adulterated by uh, particularly soy products. And when you read a little deeper, they say that they determined this because they did a DNA test on the chicken. I, I assume you read this article? So chicken was only one of the parents. Chicken was one of the parents. So I I was kind of taken aback by this because I've, I've been out of the lab a while. I grant that I don't know every new technology, but the presence of DNA doesn't tell you what proportion of, of meat something is, right? Yeah, did they... Did they actually say how they did the DNA study? Like, what was, how they do this? Yeah, there, there are quantitative DNA methods. I just haven't heard of them in this case. So what they did is they basically biopsied pieces of chicken product, and they did DNA extractions. Um, they normalized the amount of DNA from the extraction in their 96-well plates. And then they did something that I think is where the issue for me arises. So relative plant and chicken DNA were quantified by separate PCR amplification a universal plant chloroplast primer and a universal vertebrate mitochondrial DNA primer. So basically, they they extract the DNA, they normalize the total number of picograms, and then they do PCRs. You know, if you know something about PCR, it can detect the presence of something, assuming you're not cross-contaminating. But it seems a little bit dodgy to me that they're they're drawing this conclusion that they can dr- determine the amount of uh, a soybean or a chicken in this product. Yeah, so you know, after and this this was circulated pretty pretty widely that Subway chicken, unlike other fast food chicken, was only about half actual chicken because it should be noted whatever technique they used, you know, they tested chicken from some other fast food restaurants like McDonald's, Wendy's, um, A&W, Tim Hortons. Have to this is a Canadian study, so right, that's right. Uh, but all of those chickens were you know eighty five to ninety percent chicken dna but the subway really was kind of yeah it was the outlier so you'd call those the the negative controls or the controls of some sort so so there does appear to be a difference but and subway chicken is composed differently in the united states and canada so you got to keep that in mind is it yeah it is (laughs) but one of the ingredients in the canadian version is uh soy protein and I'm not exactly sure how soy protein is is isolated and manufactured. In Spanish, Dan, that means I am protein. (laughs) That's true. It sure does. Thank (laughs) you. Um, But if you're extracting the protein in some industrial process, is there going to be a lot of DNA hanging around? Or is Subway's methodology just messier with more DNA contamination? I didn't understand... uh, why you would assume that just because there is soy protein in something, there is also a lot of soy DNA. Well, I don't know if this clears it up, Dan, but recently, I think just yesterday, Subway released some lab reports of independent tests that they actually performed to refute some of these these findings. And so what they did is they actually used ELISA or enzyme-linked immunosorbent assays 
uh, to quantify soy and chicken. And this is a little bit different, Dan. Rather than PCR looking for DNA levels, ELISAs actually are able to detect protein levels. So it's using these antibodies to detect the relative amounts of different proteins from sample to sample by using these antibodies that bind to specific proteins. So what they did was they actually had an antibody that binds to a soy flour protein, and then they had another antibody that binds to some sort of chicken protein. And so by these studies that Subway reported, um, they detected by ELISA less than five parts per million of soy protein, which would be well below 1%. Yeah, I would trust an antibody binding more than I would trust DNA amplification. And, and I hope you agree, but it, it just seems like the wrong test for the wrong conclusion. And it would be interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah, well, I was actually reading a, a write-up on this from Ars Technica, and we can post a link in the show notes. And they actually did some interviews with some food science and technology researchers at different universities. And, you know, universally, they seem to think that this DNA test was not really the best way to go. Uh, one of the quotes I read said, a DNA test might be a good, th- a good measure to use if you were going to do something like, say, make sure the fish that you thought you were buying was the actual species of fish that was being advertised. It's all tilapia, Josh. Don't worry about <laughs> That's it. That's what they say. Um uh, did you know that study that came out sea recently? Seabass tilapia. Did you know that was actually like a high school student in New York who did that study? I did not know anyway, that. Anyway, uh, side note. So anyway, I don't know, Dan. I guess I had a couple of thoughts about this. One, I do wonder, even if it wasn't the best methodology, they did have some controls. I mean, it wasn't like they only tested Subway chicken. They got this 50% number. You know, they tested at least four or yeah. five different chicken samples and... The Subway one was way different than the others. I wonder why. Perhaps it is true that there is more soy DNA in the Subway samples. That doesn't necessarily mean there's more soy protein. That's true. Here's the other thought I had, Dan, and I'm going to say this with the caveat that I absolutely believe that, especially when we're ingesting things, we are believing that the way something is labeled should be accurate to what we're actually consuming. But I kind of had this thought, like, well, what if it was 50% soy and we just didn't know? Like, think about how bad for the environment meat production really is. You know, I'm not a vegetarian. I like meat. But maybe from a health and an ecology point of view, maybe a way that I could consume less meat without Without mentally giving it. I don't know. That was just a thought I had. Yeah. The the pieces of chicken product, and I have to use that phrase, are cut to look like they're a chicken breast. And I was really, I was a little bit surprised, I guess, because even though it looks like it's a a muscle from a chicken, it's actually this reconstituted amalgam of soy protein and chicken and other... And that's that's true, whether it's 50% or 98% chicken. That's true. Yeah, exactly right. So uh, what you see is not what you get. And I think... On the plus side, maybe this will get people to think about what what we're eating. Um, I think, though, the damage is done for Subway. I'm not sure there's going to be a happy conclusion to this. Do you think people are eating more Subway because of this? Story? I don't know, Dan. There was actually a Subway, like a block from my hotel this weekend, and it was pretty full yeah. a lot of the time. So, so you think they'll be fine? Yeah. Fake news. Fake news. <laughs> All right. Moving on. All right, Fake Dan. science in the news. Thank you. 
All right, Dan. So our main topic today is we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about money and grad student finances. So you might remember. I like money. I like money too. Uh, you might remember back all the way on episode 33, we had Emily Roberts, creator of gradstudentfinances.org on the show to talk about taxes and grad student stipends. You remember that? And and it is gr- getting to be that time of year again. So if you are facing the tax boogeyman, go listen to that episode. Yeah. And also, I've got a great resource for you from Emily that I'll tell you about right after this interview, if you feel like you need a little support on on getting your taxes together. But she's back with another message, and it's not just taxes. That's right. So Emily actually was invited as a speaker um, at my university, at UNC, a couple months ago to talk to our trainees about finances in grad school. And one of the topics that actually generated maybe the most interest in discussion was this topic of targeted savings accounts. And that might sound a little dry, but I think it was kind of a new and unique idea to a lot of students who are really trying to live life to the fullest, plan for financial goals, all of that on a grad student stipend. And to be honest, Dan, I actually started doing some of these things after I heard Emily's talk. You're, you're walking the walk, Josh. I am. So I thought that was really cool, and I took advantage of the fact Emily was was on my campus. So I sat down and talked to her a little bit more about these targeted savings accounts because I thought our listeners might benefit from hearing some of these tips. Well, let's take a listen. My name's Emily Roberts. Um, my company is PF for PhDs. That's personal finance for PhDs. And I uh, teach and uh, help graduate students with their personal finances, graduate students and postdocs, early career PhDs. And I do that through speaking engagements at universities. And I also run a couple websites. Gradstudentfinances.org is the main one uh, to go to for more information about this topic. Great. All right, so Emily... You gave a talk um, here on campus yesterday to grad students and postdocs about taking control of your finances during your training. One of the things you said that I thought was really fantastic was not to forget that your training is your real life too. And so sort of this notion that I can appreciate is you wanting to put off like all that grown-up stuff, wanting to put off the thinking about money, um, thinking about investments, I'll do that later when I get a real job. But really, now is the time to, to get involved in taking charge of your finances. It's really never, it's never too early to uh, get in charge of your finances, but I think graduate school is a wonderful, actually, time of opportunity to do that, um, sort of because we're receiving these low stipends, because we're constrained um, in what we're able to do with our income. So we have to be, we're forced really to be more careful about it. And so if you kind of take that, look at the bright side of it and kind of take the opportunity to say, okay, I really need to be on top of my money right now. Then you can develop all these wonderful habits. You can develop this wonderful knowledge that's going to serve you for the entire rest of your life. So I kind of like to flip the script and see it as a period of opportunity um, rather than a period of hardship or strife, which is what it can feel like sometimes. Yeah. And so that was true for you. Why don't you just briefly tell me a little bit about how you became interested in personal finance? Yeah, it it was also out of need. So I uh, graduated from college not ever having learned anything about money from my family members or my school. Um, And I moved to the D.C. area to do um, the NIH's post-bac program. And I knew how much money I was going to make, 24 k a year. And I knew that the D.C. area was, um, you know, a higher expense area. And so I kind of knew that I needed to figure some things out quick. 
And so I started reading some books and eventually got really into the online space about personal finance. And about halfway through my PhD, I became a personal finance blogger as well as a hobby that has now turned into my career. All right. So one of the topics that you discussed yesterday that generated a lot of interest with our own graduate students and postdocs was this notion of dealing with irregular expenses through these targeted savings accounts. So why don't you actually just back up and talk a little bit about what irregular expenses are and why we need to plan for them? Absolutely. So um, with a normal like approach to budgeting, usually talk about monthly expenses. Okay, uh, what fixed expenses do I have every single month? My rent, maybe some utilities, um, debt payments, perhaps. Okay, what are my variable expenses every month? Okay, I'm going to spend some money on food, I'm going to spend some money on entertainment, uh, maybe I'll go shopping, something like that. So that's kind of what a, a normal monthly budget begins to be composed of. And for graduate students, you know, we start there. Uh, but the issue is that there are also these irregular expenses that crop up maybe once a year or a few times a year. And the really troublesome ones are the ones that are uh, large enough that they're overwhelming the available cash flow that a graduate student has every month after paying their sort of regular monthly expenses. And so some examples of irregular expenses could be anything having to do with your car, you know, you're paying car insurance six months at a time, maybe your parking permit, or maybe um, some repairs that come up that you need to do. Uh, travel is another example of an irregular expense, even some grad student related, some university related ones, like having to pay fees once a year, or once a semester, um, conference expenses that come up that you might need to, be, need to be reimbursed for. All these are examples of irregular expenses. And I call them budget busters, because those large ones, you know, let's say after your regular monthly expenses, you have a couple hundred, a few hundred dollars kind of left over, unallocated, um, that you don't need for your immediate living expenses. Well, what happens when a $1,000 expense comes up? What happens when a $2,000 expense comes up? And so those are the irregular expenses that you really have to find a way to deal with. Now, people with higher incomes, maybe they can just cash flow that. Graduate students usually don't have uh, the ability to do that. And so we need to be a little bit more proactive about it. All right. So what's your advice? How do we deal with these irregular expenses that are definitely going to happen to us at some point. Yeah, so the system that I started using during graduate school is what's called targeted savings accounts or sinking funds. And so for me personally, the irregular expenses that came up um, that were troublesome for me is that all in one kind of summer, my husband and I had a big wedding season. We had all these weddings we were invited to. We wanted to travel to attend a lot of them. Uh, and then once the school year rolled around, we had to pay for our yearly parking permits for our cars on campus. Um, and at the same time, we bought um, season tickets to the Duke basketball games. So that's that's a one-time expense. And we also bought season tickets to a Broadway musical series at the uh, local theater here. And so all those things came up within a couple months of each other, and they were totally overwhelming for us. And all those things were things we really wanted to do, we really wanted to pay for. And so we kind of we kind of managed to, we kind of muddled through that period. We moved some things around, managed to get through it, um, but said we didn't want to do that again. We didn't want to have another year, another summer like that one. And so that was the point when we started using targeted savings accounts. And so for those examples that I just gave you, um, what you do is you kind of uh, group some expenses together. So like the car expenses that we had going on, which was our insurance payments, the parking permits, we grouped those together. That was going to be one savings bucket. Uh, the entertainment expenses for the basketball games, the Broadway musical series, that was our entertainment bucket. 
And so what we did was we we said, okay, what are we going to spend over the course of a year in these different categories, travel, entertainment, cars, um, projected that, and then turned that yearly amount of money that we figured we were going to spend into a monthly savings rate. So we turned um, a large irregular expense into regular fixed expenses that we could write into our budget. So, you know, instead of spending $1,000 all in one month on some expense, you save 80 some a month uh, for the entire year. And so in that way, we started converting those large irregular expenses um, into those regular fixed expenses through the targeted savings accounts. So every single month, we would save a small rate um, into the targeted savings accounts. And then when those irregular expenses came up, just pull the money back out uh, and cover the expense. Yeah, so that seems to make a lot of sense. However, I also know grad students and, well, really most people are very taxed for time and brain space. So how did you keep up with all of these money transfers and knowing like, oh, I need to put this much money in this account, this much money in that account. Oh, here's this other thing coming up. How did you, how did you stay on top of all of that? Yeah, so the way that the way that I did this personally was sort of a, a slow or kind of organic approach. So I, I just described a few expenses that all hit at one time that we decided to start three targeted savings accounts to cover. Now, by the end of graduate school, I had about eight or ten different targeted savings accounts for all these different expense areas. So those were just things that we added over time. As another irregular expense came up that qualified for a new category, like clothing purchases. I don't tend to shop for clothing every month. I tend to do it all in you know, once a year or something, all in one kind of big uh, chunk. So paying for clothing became another targeted savings account once we realized that spending pattern. So over the period over a period of a few years, we slowly um, built the system up more and more. It didn't all happen at once. But, and as you said, you know, for people who are taxed for time, taxed for um, emotional energy to deal with their finances, that may be a good approach. Just saying, oh, you know what, I had to pay for some big thing this month. Next year when this comes up again, I'm going to take care of it in a different way and just add that to your system uh, so you can build it slowly. Uh, the other approach would be to do it kind of all at once and to sit down, you know, block out a couple hours, sit down, look at your entire, you know, year in the, coming up and ask yourself, um, what is going to happen over the course of this year? What are you definitely going to be paid for? Like car insurance, for instance, you're definitely going to be making those payments. Um, what do you fear is going to happen? So what kind of little small emergencies might come up? You know, car example, again, uh, repairs and maintenance, or maybe something happens to your house, or maybe your electronics are getting to the end of their lifetime. What do you fear is going to happen? And then what do you want to happen? What are the fun things that you want to be doing with your money over the course of the year? Uh, travel that you want to do, more entertainment, more shopping. Uh, and so asking yourself those questions kind of all at once, you can start to plan out what you think your next year is going to look like financially and how targeted savings can help you get through that period. So either way, do it slowly build up the system, or if you have the time and the energy, uh, get it done all in one shot. Okay, so let's say we have some listeners who are hearing you talk about these targeted savings accounts, and they're thinking, this sounds great, this would totally relieve some stress in my life to be proactive. So walk us through some practical steps for how someone could begin to make this happen. 
with their finances? Yeah. So one of the questions that came up yesterday during um, my seminar, which has been asked by many other students at other talks I've given, was, uh, do you literally have different savings accounts for all of these different targeted savings, you know, buckets? Um, my answer to that is yes. During graduate school, I literally had, um, I literally opened up multiple savings accounts at my bank, and um, you know, saved at different rates into each of them using automated transfers, of course, so that I didn't have to remember to do that every single month. Um, and that that system works really well for me personally. Uh, other people like to just keep one account, put all the money into that one sort of large account and do their own kind of accounting on the side to say, okay, well, really, this portion is going to go here, this portion is going to go here. Um, I think it's a little easier from the bookkeeping standpoint to have those separate accounts because you can kind of just glance at the balances, um, you know, in like I use Mint or whatever sort of aggregator you have to keep track of all your accounts. You can just glance at those and see what the balances are in the different areas. You can name the accounts according to, you know, their purpose. So it's really not um, too much trouble to be keeping track of in that way. But it's it's a personal question about whether you want a bunch of different accounts or just one account. And I, as I said before, I definitely recommend doing the automated savings transfers for those monthly savings rates and then doing a manual transfer out uh, just when just when the expense comes up. I'm curious, when you started doing this, and so you had your eight or nine different accounts that I assume maybe once a month you were transferring certain smaller amounts of money to. Did you find that you know once you had all these accounts that actually you were more judicious in how you spent the money out of those accounts or were you very much like oh good we have 100 bucks in the clothing budget I'm going out or in the clothing account shopping spree time. Hmm. Or were you like, oh, but if I just saved another two months, then I would have... I mean, what was sort of emotionally what happened for you once you really got this targeted savings process going? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think there are different answers for me depending on the type of account, um, what, what the account was for. But one of the great advantages that I found for using targeted savings accounts was that I tended to overestimate the amount of money that I needed um, to spend over the course of a year in a certain category. So like clothing, for instance, I would pretty consistently overestimate how much I wanted to spend on clothes over the course of a year. And then it was kind of like, oh, uh, you have some bonus money, you know, when you get to the end of the year and you haven't uh, come up against what you thought you would spend, do you want to move that to maybe another targeted savings account? Or yeah, do you want to go out and have a bigger splurge in that one area like you planned for? Um, it's really actually a larger question of budgeting. Does budgeting help you spend less? Or like, does it help you tamp down on your spending? Or does budgeting actually cause you to spend more because you spend up to the levels that you allocated? And that's, it's a really, it's really a personality question more so than a than a question about budgeting as like a method to use. So great benefit for me was oversaving, um, which came in handy when graduate school um, ended a little bit faster for me than I thought it was going to. Uh, it was helpful that we had a little bit of extra money saved, so it sort of became a transition fund, actually. Um, but for me, whether or not it caused me to spend more, uh, it depended on the category. So I think for our travel account, that was always kind of fluctuating close down to zero because we always seemed to be spending money out of that one. And yeah, if we saw that we had a little bit more money to spare, yeah, maybe we would um, splurge a little bit more on one of our trips or something. So yeah, it depends on the account. Um, my husband's uh, corollary for that is electronics. If we ever had any money in our electronic savings account, he wanted to buy some extra dongle or accessory or whatever. So, so the one, one other question I had was I could imagine myself even being very eager about 
this targeted savings approach and thinking, all right, I'm going to go all in on targeted savings. I would list out all the things I wanted to, to save up for. I would set all of my automated transfers. What advice would you give if I do that and realize, oh wow, I've, <laughs> I've transferred so many things over, I actually don't have enough money left over to do the things I need to do for month to month? Yeah, uh, I have that problem every time I reevaluate my targeted savings account. My eyes are bigger than my stomach. Uh, I want to do all this fun discretionary spending over here with my targeted savings, and I uh, overwhelm the available cash flow that I have. So, very, I think it would be a, a common problem, uh, especially grad students with limited means. Um, so, you just have to go in and reevaluate. So, what are the things you can change? Um, you can change some of the estimates that you've made for how much you are going to be spending over the course of the year in one category or another. Especially for those discretionary ones, you might have to say, okay, I've got to cut back in this one area. I just can't afford to have you know this much money coming out of my checking account every single month. Um, so, you can reevaluate the, the the irregular expenses themselves. Um, move some different things around for the, your estimates. Another thing is that you can try to find more money in your regular monthly budget to devote to the targeted savings accounts. Only two ways to do that, earn more or spend less. Um, so a side income is a possibility uh, for many graduate students, maybe not all, depending on their contracts and fellowship terms that they're under. But uh, side income could be a possibility if you say, well, you know, that, that one discretionary area is just so important to me. It would just make my life so much better. It's worth it to make a few hours of sacrifice every week to earn a little bit more doing tutoring or editing or whatever is available to you. Um, okay, so you can earn more or you can spend less. So you also can reevaluate those regular monthly expenses that you have, whether fixed or variable, um, to try to find a little, to reduce your living expenses, try to find a little bit more wiggle room for money that you can devote to those targeted savings accounts. And what I like to recommend to students um, when you're looking at all the different um, budget categories that you have over the course of a month is to rank them by the amount, largest to smallest, and start at the top. What's your largest expense every single month? Probably your housing. Uh, possibly transportation, maybe food is up there as well in the top couple. Um, go from that list from high, go down that list highest to lowest, and try to reevaluate each one of those expenses. Because if you can manage to reduce one of those large, especially fixed expenses like housing, that'll free up so much money every single month going forward. Um, and so it's a it's a tough decision to have to move um, to decide to move during the course of graduate school, or maybe to sell your car or downsize your car. But it's just a one time decision to carry out, and then every single month you have that increased amount of cash flow to put where your heart really is. So some of our listeners may may not actually know this, and I don't know if you can speak to this, but how how easy is it or how common is it for, like do, bank, do most banks just allow you to open five, six, ten savings accounts and transfer between them? Uh, like how, how easy is it to do that? Yeah, I'm not sure that all banks do. So I use internet only, I use an internet only bank right now. I bank with Ally. Um, in the past, I did the system using Capital One 360. So those are both internet only banks. And so I know just from my personal experience that I didn't hit whatever upper limit they might have had on the number of savings accounts. Um, now for the credit unions, as we discussed yesterday, your local credit union allows for multiple savings accounts. Um, I don't know if that's going to be the case for you know your conventional banks. 
Um, and if they do allow you to open multiple savings accounts, they also might require you to have some kind of minimum balance in them, or maybe there's going to be a fee. And so definitely if you if you love this, you know, idea of using targeted savings accounts, you love the idea of having literal different savings accounts open, um, it may be worth possibly changing banks over if your bank isn't going to, uh, isn't very conducive for, for this system. And so I know that those two banks that I mentioned, Ally and Capital One 360, those are both um, going to make this system easy for you. But certainly check with whatever bank you're with or credit union you're with currently um, to see what's possible there. And even if they don't um, allow you to proliferate savings accounts or they're going to charge you a fee or whatever, you can do the system with only one large bucket account and just do the, you know, keeping track sort of on your own. Uh, it'll make it, in my opinion, a little bit more difficult, but it's certainly a viable option. Okay, Emily, this was all great information. Anything else you want to say? Yeah, so one of the questions that came up yesterday during the talk is the interplay between targeted savings accounts and your emergency fund. So I had talked about both of those topics as versions of short-term savings. And so my answer to that question was, yes, there absolutely is kind of a, a flow between these two types of accounts in terms of what expenses would be covered by one versus the other. I basically come down to saying expenses that you can anticipate and discretionary expenses are more appropriate for those targeted savings accounts. Of course, if you have somebody that comes up that is necessary and is um, not something you anticipated, that's pretty much the definition of an emergency. So that's something that would be appropriate for using your emergency fund. Now, I wouldn't start writing my emergency fund for discretionary expenses uh, that are more appropriate for those targeted savings. One of, Part of my answer to that question yesterday was also, uh, yeah, I might write a different targeted savings account for, um, you know, if I wanted to go a little bit further than the balance that I had in another one, but not my emergency fund. In my opinion, the emergency fund is pretty sacred, but it comes down to anticipated versus unanticipated, I think. So if you have um, a large amount of money built up in targeted savings accounts, then it's probably reasonable to keep a smaller emergency fund because you're sort of whittling down the expenses that might come up in your life. You're anticipating more and more of them. So the unanticipated things become less and less likely. In fact, using these targeted savings accounts, I never had to access my emergency fund during graduate school because things like car repairs that came up unexpectedly, I had saved on the side for them already. Well, this was cool. Thank you, Emily. Yeah, thank you. All right, Dan, that's targeted savings accounts. You know, um, I used to have some targeted savings accounts when I was trying to save for a car. And I think the bank that I used at the time is now gone. But there was a way for, for me to name the savings account and then to auto deduct every month. So it would just like come out of my bank account and I wouldn't see it, and I wouldn't miss it, and my car savings account would just go up. Yeah, so you were, you were doing it, Dan. You were doing it before you even knew what it was called. That's right. I think the, the mind shift for some of this or the unique aspect is probably, probably many of us save for retirement or maybe do an investment account that way where we automatically have money that goes out into account, an account monthly. Um, but here it's like, okay, for these other expenses, these kind of these more regular, maybe annual or every few month expenses, like, um, or, or even things we know are going to come up, like a car repair or maybe a healthcare type expense, that you, you can actually save for those things too in a more automated way. And this is what I did, Dan. Like, after hearing Emily's talk, I was used to through grad school, I would always get like a big tax refund. It was kind of like, it felt like a bonus, uh, even though I knew it was money that I had already paid. <laughs> Loaning to the government interest free. That's right. Um, but uh, more recently, you know, my wife and I, we do some some contract work. And so there's 
sort of more taxes we owe at tax time. And so a couple of years in a row, you know, I get surprised by this couple thousand dollar bill. And I was like, oh, wow, taxes, that'd be a great way to do it. So I actually started a targeted savings account for taxes. So at the first of every month, a certain amount of money comes out. Of course, I've only done this for a couple months, so it's not going to help me a whole lot this year. Um, but I'll started another one for travel. And so kind of building up this uh, account. I don't even have to think about it now. It's named travel and taxes and my online banking. So I can see the, the number go up. Well, it's nice by. you don't have to feel guilty. You don't have to say, I want to go on vacation with my family, but I'd have to take money and, and drain the bank account. You say, I have already saved this money. I've put it away for this purpose. It's valuable to me. I want to do it. And now it's sitting there. I can just go spend it. Yeah. And I found this to be true. I guess this really is like saving for, for emergencies too. It's when you automate that process and it automatically goes, you know, there's no mental decision I have to make like, oh, do I really want to transfer that money out? When it just happens without me thinking about it, you actually are able to live without it and it's gone to do this thing you want to do in a way that maybe you wouldn't have done if you were consciously having to go in and transfer it yourself. Yeah, I think this only works if it's automated. If if I sit down and I say to myself, do I want to take $50 out of my spending and put it into a bank account for something in the future? No, I'm never going to want to do that. <laughs> or maybe I'll want to do it once. And on that day, I should just set it up. Because if I have to ask myself every time, I'm going to forget. Mm-hmm. I'm going to think that something else is more important. And it just won't happen. Yeah. And Dan, this is also good for our time management. You probably remember our focus funnel episode, automate, delegate, eliminate. Yep. So the more things we can automate, the better for our time management. Um, I'll say too, Dan, I'm a big credit union fan, and my credit union allowed me to create up to six savings accounts. I think you just have to maintain a minimum balance of like $25. I'm sure other online banks will let you do the same thing. So um, anyway, I just thought people might find this useful. Try it out. Let us know your thoughts. Or if you've got any other money tips for making the most out of your grad school stipend, we would love to hear it. Now, Dan, right before the interview, I teased this a little bit. Uh, For any of our listeners who are starting to get a little nervous and sweating about tax time, uh, one of the things Emily wanted me to let all of our listeners know is that she actually has recorded a webinar for grad students, and I imagine it would be useful for postdocs too, all about tax season, uh, clearing up some confusion that students might have about their stipend and scholarship tax forms or what to do if they didn't get forms, teach them how to calculate taxable income and show them where to report grad student income. And so the the webinar actually has already taken place by the time this episode posts, but what she's going to do is she's recording it and she's actually going to post it online through tax day, April 18th, and she's going to make it available for our listeners. So if you go to her website, that's gradstudentfinances.org slash HelloPhD, you can actually find a place, you can get access to that webinar Um, And also, she's got some other links to some other resources that you might find helpful. And I'll say to Dan, on gradstudentfinances.org, Emily has a lot of great articles specifically for grad students uh, to get their finances in order. Yeah, you're going to want to bookmark it, save it as a resource. You will face more financial questions in graduate school and postdoc training. So it's great to have an expert and somebody who has spoken with a lot of different grad students and postdocs knows the ins and outs, and can give you some advice. All right, Dan. Got a word puzzle for us this week? I always do. The clue last week was, much has been written about this device used for detecting falsehoods. 
Do you have a guess, Josh? I know this one, Dan, because I've I've been given this test so many times. Oh, you have? <laughs> Actually, I haven't, but I think it would be cool to do. I'm going to guess the polygraph test. It is the polygraph. It has come to mean this device where we monitor your pulse and your blood pressure and the conductance of your skin, and there are these little pens that write down. They kind of trace it over time, and somebody sits there and asks you questions and reads it. So um, poly com- polygraph comes from... Poly, which is much, and graphos, writing, um, from the Greek. And the original meaning of the word, the original usage was from the 1700s, and it was a mechanical device that was used for making copies of something written. So if you were writing a letter, um, there was this device that you could use with two pens linked by some arms and springs. Oh, I think I've seen, like, old photos or... You probably have because you know who you loved this thing, Thomas Jefferson. Wrote hundreds and hundreds of letters a year, um, and kept copies of all of them. And so he used the polygraph to uh, make those duplicates. I don't know why he didn't Xerox them, but he didn't. <laughs> send them to FedEx. Just send them to FedEx. Just uh, scan them to PDF. You're fine. I think it'd be really cool, Dan. On the air, we should do polygraph tests. I should say, like, Dan, do you really like doing this show with me? I love the beer. <laughs> That's probably true. Yeah, it's good today. Um, let me tell you who the winner is, Josh. We are recording late enough that we actually can announce the winner, uh, Chase from Case Western. So we'll be sending him an Amazon gift card. Oh, I know Chase. I've met him. Fantastic. Hi, well, Chase. Yeah, he, he won this week. So I'll give you the clue for next week. This comes from uh, a listener and friend of the show, Megan Bond. She and I trade etymology puzzles periodically, and I thought this one was fun. So the clue that she wrote is, this life-saving mold probably shouldn't be applied via paintbrush. I'll say it one more time. This life-saving mold probably shouldn't be applied via paintbrush. Remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue, and once you get it, you'll find the literal meaning of that science word as a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com, and I'll randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. All right, Dan. Fantastic. Another show in the books. There it is. Uh, Go save some money, everybody. Man, this was a great show, Dan. We had a lot of listener contributions. Thanks to Jada for sending in the beer. Thanks to Megan Bond for sending in the etymology puzzle. Thanks for everybody who has taken the survey. Please uh, go to the website and do that if you haven't yet. Yeah, and we're going to leave that up for probably another two weeks. Uh, But definitely, we love the feedback. If you've already taken the survey, thank you so much. But we'll leave it up a couple more weeks. Uh, So if you want to let us know what you like about the show or how you think we can make it better, let us know. if you took it last week and you changed your mind about it and wanted to change your answer. I used to love the show. And then they drank those dang IPAs again. Two stars. If you have an idea for a future show or comment on a past show, we always love to hear that. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com, or you can tweet at us at hellophd. We would love to hear from you. All right, well... Thanks, Josh. This has been great. And I think we are both due for a nice Subway chicken sandwich right now. Soy protein. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll be back at you next time. See you then.